Happy New Year, dear listener. It's January 2020. I'm your host, Andrew Scott Willison. We're into a new year, a new decade. I'm excited to talk about a film today that also has a lot of new beginnings, a lot of coming into one's own. The story of Thelma and Louise is one that, much like the script, starts from humble origins and finds its way through a lot of ups and downs before it finally landed in the realms of cinema history. But, as always, before we get into that, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. first beer of our new year for me is going to be barn beer from Plan B Farm Brewing. Now, I know this might seem like a very odd beer to pair with Thelma and Louise, but stick with me. Plan B is located in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, and is an actual farm. It was founded in 2013 by Emily and Evan Watson, and they have an unconventional approach to brewing their beer. They do it through something called wild fermentation. Essentially, it breaks down like this. Traditionally, when brewing beer, all the ingredients are mixed and mashed and boiled into a wort. Yeast is then added to the wort to convert the sugars into alcohol. Brewers most commonly use two types of yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Saccharomyces pastorianus. A mouthful, yes. But the two different kinds of yeast traditionally define what kind of beer you're brewing. The former for an ale and the latter for a lager. With wild fermentation, however, the beer is allowed to ferment by exposing it to any natural yeast that might be found in a nearby environment. Traditionally, these yeasts are found near flowers, berries, etc. You see where I'm going with this yet? Plan B, and that's B-E-E, brewing, ferments their beers with the yeast found and cultivated by their extensive bee population on their farm. The wild yeasts come from the beehives and give their beer a unique sort of semi-sour kind of taste. The barn beer I have in front of me, I don't know a lot about. I know I'm looking at notes of resin hops, which usually indicates a bit of sweetness, but that's about all I got. So let's see how this goes. I have, I'm gonna pop this and we're gonna go for it. So the first thing I notice as soon as I pop the bottle is there's a buildup of some kind of something around the rim of the bottle and around the bottom there, such is the case usually with with a wild ale. The the beer itself is a very light yellow, uh, almost almost white, I'd say. Uh, Just a little bit of head, nothing too crazy. Uh, And the aroma, I mean... It's got a very sour aroma to it. You can tell this is a sour, obviously, right from the get-go. But overall, let's see how it tastes here. I like that. I like that a lot. It's definitely sour, as is common with wild fermentation beers. The sourness really kind of hits you in the face and gives you a really strong overall mouthfeel that, you know, you know, like drinking or eating any kind of sour thing, it gives you that mouth reaction automatically. But the flavor is there. The flavor is subtle but sweet. And 
overall, yeah, I, I imagine as I drink this, as we go, I will be taking dramatic pauses to, uh, allow my mouth to recover. But yeah, it, overall, like it's, it's very sour and it really feels like a beer that came in into its own, uh, in the wild. And speaking of things that come into their own in the wild, let's talk about Thelma and Louise. How do you like that transition? So let's start, as I always do, with a brief synopsis, and we'll sort of go on from there. So, uh, housewife Thelma, played by Gina Davis, and diner waitress Louise, played by Susan Sarandon, are excited to escape from their doldrum lives for a weekend away at a fishing cabin. On their way, they stop for a drink, but things turn south when a man tries to rape Thelma and Louise steps in and kills him before he has the chance. Now on the run, the two women try and find their way to Mexico as the road trip turns into more of a crime spree and an awakening for both of them. Finally cornered by the Arkansas police officer Hal, played by Harvey Keitel, the two decide to just keep driving off into the Grand Canyon. An iconic scene, to be sure. I would be willing to bet that most of you listening to this podcast have a sense of what that scene is already, even if you haven't seen the movie. So the history of this film is pretty intense. I will try my best to do it justice. This is a very short podcast, but let's break it down. The idea for Thelma and Louise was originally conceived by a woman named Callie Curry. Callie was a music video line producer in LA in the late 80s who, when driving home from a set one night, was hit, as she says, by a bolt of lightning that only a tired mind can create. Two women go on a crime spree. There's your tagline. Now, Curry wasn't a screenwriter, but the script seemed to write itself. Over the next six months, it poured out of her. Curry has said from the beginning that she imagines these women as everyday women thrust into an unfortunate situation. She imagined them as the kind of women that are invisible to society, the kind of women that have to put a face on that isn't their own. And she saw the transformation that they went through as a revealing of their true faces. As she was writing and after the completion of the script, Curry was imagining this film with a tiny budget that she could direct and her good friend and producing partner Amanda Temple could produce. The two had been working on the music video scene in the 80s and were unimpressed by the world and talent around them. They figured that if things like the projects they were working on could get funding, surely they could find someone to give them a few million dollars to make their film. As Corey was writing, she imagined casting then-indie actresses Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand in the leads, two actresses who had actually been making the news recently with films like Raising Arizona. After the script was completed, Curry and Temple started to try and shop the script around, but were met with a lot of pushback. This was a setup that we hadn't seen a lot before. The classic road trip crime spree movies had traditionally always been men. They had traditionally been people who intentionally committed crimes. Movies like Easy Rider and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The closest comparison would likely be Bonnie and Clyde, which even in that crime spree classic, Clyde was already a robber when he came upon Bonnie. At one point, Curry gave the script to her friend Mamie Polk. Polk was a producing partner of Ridley Scott. Curry had hoped that Polk, who she considered, quote, in the industry, would be able to read the script and give her a sense of whether or not she was tilting at windmills with the whole idea. Polk promptly read and loved the script. 
uh, and insisted that she be allowed to show it to Ridley Scott. Curry initially protested, fearing that letting a major director like Scott read it would bring all her hopes and dreams of making the film come crashing down. Clearly, he would tell her that the script was no good and she'd be toast. Ridley Scott, however, had the exact opposite reaction to the script. He immediately sensed what was special about it and and lauded the bravery of the ending. He told Curry and Temple that he was excited for the chance to produce this film and brought it into the fold of Scott Free Productions. Uh, as soon as the script was optioned, word started getting around town and doors started opening up. Sadly, this meant that Curry wouldn't be able to direct it any longer. It, she was not experienced enough to helm a project of her own, but she was still kept on as the head writer and shared a co-producing credit. Finding an actual director turned out to be a difficult task. Remember, Ridley Scott was brought on as a producer, so finding a director that could carry a film like this became just as important as finding the right cast. Ridley and his production staff met with dozens of potential directors, but after each one, Ridley remained unconvinced. Unbeknownst to him at the time, he felt protective of the film, and interviewing all of these different directors slowly convinced him internally that he should be the one to take the reins. Curry was reticent of this idea. Uh, after all, at the time, Scott was known for much, much larger action movies, and it's hard to draw any kind of comparison between Thelma and Louise and films like Blade Runner and Alien. But as the two were working close together on the script, she sort of started to come around to the idea. So while Ridley Scott did his mental gymnastics to come around to the idea of directing, the much bigger challenge of finding the two right leads for this film was already well underway. As I said earlier, Ridley Scott signing on as producer opened up a lot of doors in terms of casting. In fact, the script caught fire and flew through all of the Hollywood A-listers at the time. Right out of the gate, they signed Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer to play the roles. Both were known quantities in the industry and both were eager for the parts, but Ridley's initial reluctance to take on the director's chair ended up, and this is a theme that we're going to see a couple times here, ended up causing delays that pulled both actresses away from the project. A sad turn of events, but one that we can't be too upset about. Because it turns out Jodie Foster left this project to work on a small film called The Silence of the Lambs. Perhaps you've heard of it. After that, Ridley briefly considered Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn for the main two roles. Though after a couple of meetings, it was decided that while they were great, they just weren't right for the roles and the hunt for the leading ladies continued. Gina Davis, who at the time was known for things like Earth Girls Are Easy and The Fly, had been among the first to reach out regarding the script. Originally, when Ridley Scott was only acting as producer, she was told that there was already a cast in mind, which isn't, like, terribly untrue. But, like so many that we've seen before, she was relentless and had her agent call on a weekly basis to ask for a meeting. Once Ridley had had enough of searching for directors and officially took charge, he did finally agree to meet with her. Originally, she had been after the role of Louise, but as she met with Ridley and then discussed the role, she found herself open to either role. Ridley agreed, though he was leaning more towards her in the Thelma role, but before actually agreeing to cast her, he wanted to find the counterpoint. That was fine by Davis until another potential project comes up, as it happened before, and she had to know. So, not wanting to lose her like he had lost his other potential cast, he agreed to officially cast her as long as she was willing to play either role, if it came to that. 
Gina promptly agreed, excited to be part of the project, and the hunt for her counterpart began. Ridley Scott had sent a script to Susan Sarandon, who was somewhat out of the loop with the Hollywood scene. She lived in New York and didn't much care for the politics and craziness of L.A. When she met with Ridley and Gina about the role, it was clear from the beginning that she was Louise. She was connected to the character. She had all kinds of thoughts about how she was portrayed and how to make the script better. There was, there was no contest. There was no question about who would play who. Susan was promptly signed on to the project as Louise. Gina Davis happily took in the role of Thelma, and we had our leading ladies. There were also more than a few male characters to round out the cast, and it basically reads like a Tarantino film. Most notably, you get Harvey Keitel, who had to be heavily convinced that he was the right for this role of Hal, the detective, uh, the one that chases the girls from Arkansas to Oklahoma to the Grand Canyon. But once he did agree, once he was worn down by Ridley Scott and did agree, he, he took on the role and delivered just a fantastic performance. We also get Michael Madsen as Luis's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jimmy. Ridley originally wanted Madsen for the role of Thelma's would-be rapist, but Madsen refused and pushed back for the idea that he could play Jimmy, which Ridley was on board with as long as Madsen could convince Susan Sarandon that they could work together, which... As you can plainly see in the film, they work together just fine. Christopher McDonald shines as Thelma's terrible husband, Daryl. Uh, like so many of the actors cast, McDonald really wanted this role, so much so that he grew a mustache and wore cheap jewelry to his audition. And then there's J.D. The character of J.D. was originally slated for Billy Baldwin. But like so many things with this film, the amount of time that the film spent in pre-production pulled Baldwin away to another project. And we got stuck with this unknown kid who had been day-playing on some random TV episodes, Brad Pitt. Now, I've talked about Brad Pitt on this podcast before. Nowadays, he's one of the most dependable actors out there, and Thelma and Louise was really his launching off point. The detail and precision he put into such a small role marks the birth of the charismatic movie star's career. Just a few short years after this film, he'd be pulling first billing over Anthony Hopkins in Legends of the Fall. All right, so we've got our cast in. Filming begins in early June of 1990, and it's clear from the start that the cast is made for one another. Many of them are on record stating that playing opposite Gina Davis or opposite of Brad Pitt or even Harvey Keitel actually elevated their own performances. Uh, production lasts just shy of three months, shooting all over Utah and parts of California. Uh, and there are a couple great stories that come out of the production. First, towards the end of the film, Thelma and Louise have a confrontation with the lewd truck driver they've been encountering over the course of their journey. In possibly the biggest spectacle of the film, the women fire their guns at the oil tanker he's been hauling, and it explodes into a massive fireball. During the filming, Ridley Scott actually organized it to be a much larger explosion than he had talked about with either Davis or Sarandon. His hope was that the unexpected size of the explosion would help give an authenticity to the reaction. A solid idea. It's been known to work before. However, in this case, it somewhat backfired when the surprise made both Gina and Susan break out of character and duck for cover. And then there's the final scene wherein Thelma and Louise drive their car off the edge of the supposed Grand Canyon. This was actually shot next to a cliff in Moab, Utah, 
and by a twist of the schedule, it was actually the last scene to be filmed of the production. Uh, usually certain larger kind of key elements like this are, are wrapped earlier in case that there's an issue and something needs to be reshot or what have you. But in this case, no, they, their final climactic scene makes its way to the final day of production. And to be clear, this was the final day of the production. The next morning, uh, Ridley Scott would have to wrap and go to start work on another film. They, It was a federal holiday, and this was their one shot. And to add on top of all of that, it's a dusk scene. Now, when you're shooting at dusk, you usually have about 45 minutes of usable light before it gets far too dark to see anything. And your consistency goes off. So we're looking at the major scene of the film. They've got 45 minutes to get it right. It involves a massive stunt. And tomorrow, there's no more filming. Overall, we had three different cars. Two that were dummy cars set to go off the edge and one that was the picture car, you know, uh, with the actresses in it. There was some concern. Uh, the first dummy car, when they launched it, it went off at a weird angle and was not usable in terms of the, the visuals. However, luckily, the second car went off without a hitch. looked great. That's the one that's in the final picture. And then we get the final scene between Thelma and Louise. A heartfelt, well-executed performance that they had. No time for second takes. And then just like that, much like the characters of this film, they hit the end of the line for the production. Then we get into post-production, and the project started running into some financial issues. To go back to the beginning, originally financing for the film came from a man named Giancarlo Perrieri, an Italian money man who had been buying up and rescuing films all, all over Hollywood. Unfortunately, and this is a much larger scandal than I'm really going to get into in a podcast of this length, he was all smoke and mirrors. The funding was not nearly as robust as he was promising, and eventually the money dried up. The funds weren't coming in in the amounts that they were promised. And eventually they kind of were stuck. The film was out at the processor and the negatives were being held hostage because there was no one to pay it. They couldn't pay the bills for the final score from Hans Zimmer. And their whole plan for marketing the film was in trouble because they, there just wasn't the funding coming in. The producers and Ridley were continually told that the money for all of this finishing and advertising was on its way. Uh, but eventually it became clear that no such funding was coming and they ended up with only 60% of what they originally had thought. And that can be brutal, especially when you're talking about something where you haven't spent any money on advertising yet. That affects your bottom line in terms of the revenue that's going to be generated from the film. Eventually they do get it all done. They find their way and they have their first screening. It's an out of competition screening at the Cannes Film Festival in 1991. Not a terrible way to start out. And... Unlike some of the other films I review, I've reviewed on this podcast, Thelma and Louise was extremely well-reviewed when it was released. There's reports of people cheering when Harlan the Rapist was shot. There's nothing really but good reviews coming out of the, out of the film critic world. Roger Ebert was his only real qualm with the movie being the freeze frame at the end. He felt it kind of cheapened the whole thing, but that's a very nitpicky thing for an otherwise solid movie. It was released wide in the U.S. on May 21st in 1991. Uh, it did $6.1 million its opening weekend on its way to a $45.3 million total over its 10-week theatrical run. That's pretty good, especially for a movie that costs only $16 million. You know, when you're well on your way to 
paying back your costs in your first weekend, that's a good sign. It, it currently stands at an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Honestly, I think it deserves much better than that. This movie is incredibly well done, incredibly heartfelt, and really speaks to something that, you know, was topical at the time and remains topical to this day. You know, these characters are a lot more flushed out than a lot of the characters that we see in current Oscar contender movies. You connect immediately with them and stick with them no matter what they do. I mean, it is about two women going on a crime spree. You know, they rob convenience stores. They blow up oil tankers, all kinds of different stuff. But you're there with them because you understand, much like the character of Harvey Keitel's Hal, you understand that this is not something that they're doing intentionally. This is just the world that they've been thrust into. And it really connects you on a very intimate level with them. That's a framing that's well-recognized. The Academy nominated this film for six different awards. For Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, they actually split Best Actress. There was no supporting lead, you know, breakdown, which is, as of this recording, the last time that that's happened to a single film, having two leading ladies split the, the nomination. Ridley Scott was nominated for Best Director. Adrian Biddle was nominated for Best Cinematography. Uh, and Tom Noble was nominated for Film Editing. And then Callie Curry, the one who uh, had the original idea, would go on to win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for this film. It's really a Cinderella story. You know, she, as I said at the top, she was not a screenwriter. She didn't really have a full understanding of what went into a script, but she's quoted saying that she didn't want to find out too much because she knew the pieces that were going to be important in this scene, the pieces that were going to fit. And, you know, we all know how to tell stories, but she just like, I don't know. It's, it's a well-deserved, it's a well-deserved Oscar win. So yeah, that felt like a whirlwind. There is so much more to the story of Thelma and Louise. I hope that you'll like seek out some more information on it. There is a book called Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to an Edge. Uh, and it really dives in and examines the profound effect that this film had not only on, you know, the, the pop culture of the day, but on Hollywood in, in general. So that being said, here's a quick fun fact breakdown. Uh, I always do these at the end here. I'm sure if you've ever listened through all the way to one of these, here come the quick facts. Uh, as I said a minute ago, well, I guess I'm doubling up on myself here, but this was the last film to get a twin double best actress nominations at the Oscars. Uh, one for Gina Davis and one for Susan Sarandon. However, I didn't say this before. Both lost to Jodie Foster, who you'll remember at the top was originally cast in the role of I don't know. I want to say Louise. I'll have to find that out. I'll, I'll report back. She actually ended up winning the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs that year. Um, so again, we can't be too sad that, that she didn't pull through on this film. Uh, at one point, the idea was thrown around of having Louise push Thelma out of the car at the end, but was deemed not as strong of an ending. And the ending on this is a really important thing to sort of focus on for a minute. This is a downbeat ending for sure. You know, it's it's always said by by Curry that she doesn't see it as a suicide at the end. 
it's more of a um them continuing on them follow you know continuing their their rise to freedom um but from the beginning the studios had an issue with the with the ending they they were always looking for a different way to bring us bring us home and you know having louise push thelma out of the car is is one of those sort of interactions that was tossed around and i give props to ridley scott and callie curry for sticking with what would become the iconic ending back to the facts here the rastafari i love this one the rastafarian cyclist who breathed smoke into the cop car trunk was not an actor but actually a man that ridley scott just happened to pass uh when he was being driven to, to set one day and it was a somewhat improvised scene that he kind of threw in at the last minute and i think plays fantastically so overall like I said before, this movie opened number four in the box office Memorial Day weekend of 1991. It took in $6.1 million its opening weekend. Number one that weekend was the movie Backdraft, uh, which, to go again, was the movie that Stephen Baldwin was actually pulled away to instead of being in Thelma and Louise. That movie did $15.7 million that weekend. Thelma and Louise was the 25th highest grossing movie of 1991, uh, pulled in $45 million, its whole theatrical run. I think I said that before, too. Uh, number one that year was Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which brought in $204 million. So, yeah, you know, 25, respectable. I'm down. So that's 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 really what I've got for uh, for Thelma and Louise. Uh, I hope this was a good episode to kick off our new year. I'm going to come back here to my barn beer, which I've been sipping on as we go and pausing dramatically, which I will no doubt edit out before I post this, but I'm really enjoying it. My, my mouth is adjusted to the sourness of it. It drinks really well. It drinks really easy. The flavor is there. The flavor, it's not, there's some sours that you drink that you just, it's a sour kick and there's no flavor to it, but you can taste there's actually a little bit of you can taste there's some honey in there. There's a couple different flavors going on. Um, so yeah, uh, I I do I do like this beer, and I do love the Plan B Farm Brewery. Uh, my wife and I went there a couple of years ago, and it's just it's a beautiful, peaceful farm that just makes some great beer. They use all local New York sourced ingredients. Um, even on the bottle here, they list their malt comes from Germantown, New York. Their hops come from Henrietta, New York. Uh, and the microflora comes from Poughkeepsie. And when I was reading about this, even down to their labeling and their bottles come from local businesses in the New York area. So I give props to them. I'm really enjoying this beer. And that, I think, will take us home for the inaugural episode of the Movie Brewer Podcast in 2020. Once again, I'm Andrew Scott Willis. It's been a pleasure talking about this with you guys. As always, I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at The Movie Brewer. I'd love to hear from you guys if you have any ideas about uh, movies that you think I should review, movies that have great stories that are worth telling. And I'll be coming back in a couple of weeks with another film. And we're starting to get into Oscar season here. So be sure to you know head out and see some movies and let me know what you think. Until then, cheers, and I'll talk to you guys next time.